you want to open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 11, want to begin our thoughts there this morning and use the, the emphasis of Paul here in this passage as an introduction at least to our discussion as it still pertains to the idea of living above the fray, being people who uh, make better use of our time and maybe even, if need be, along the way, clear our schedules and uh, put a little more emphasis on those things that are spiritual in our lives. Paul begins this chapter, and just just a, a brief word of context about this book. Paul has spent, uh, if you read 2 Corinthians, the bulk of this, of this book defending his apostleship. He had been with the Corinthian brethren. He had preached to them. He had helped to convert a number of those he had, he had labored with them for some time. He had written to them at least two letters already. By the time this letter was written, one inspired and one apparently uninspired. And yet when word reaches him after all of that communication, the Corinthians are doubting whether or not Paul is a valid apostle. They're not sure if he is who he says that he was. They can trust the things that he's given them. And because of that, they had begun to discredit or to distrust Christianity as a whole, that maybe the system of Christianity wasn't what Paul had presented it to be, and so they were concerned, or he was concerned that his, their lack of faith in him would result in a lack of faith in the gospel, and thus their souls would be in jeopardy. And so he argues from a number of different vantage points, defending himself and, and encouraging them to accept what he had to say. And then he said, it, beginning in verse 1 of chapter 11, I wish that you would bear with me in a little foolishness, but indeed you are bearing with me. All he's saying in verse 1 is, I wish you'd just play along a little bit longer. Give me a little more opportunity to, to make my case. I know it doesn't sound uh, like something that, that I should have to do, but just, just hear me out, we might say in, in our common vernacular. Just, just listen to one more argument. He says, I'm jealous for you with a godly jealousy. I betrothed you to one husband so as to Christ. I might present you as a chaste or a pure virgin. He said, I, I came to you to convert you that you might be presented to Christ. It wasn't about me and about my doctrine or about my, my fields or, or anything like that. It was about you and your relationship to the Lord. But I'm afraid, verse 3, and here's the heart of it. I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his craftiness, your minds may be led astray from the simplicity and purity of devotion to Christ. He said, I'm worried that this is going to steal you away from the Lord. It's going to cause you to, to, to not trust Him, to not want to be with Him, to not be faithful to Him. And then he says in verse 4, it's because you have readily received something other than what we gave you. That's basically what verse 4, what verse four says. You, you've accepted something other than what you heard. You, you've bought into something that, that, that we didn't sell you, that we didn't deliver to you, and yet we came to you by the authority of Jesus Christ as an apostle. And you didn't... Now you're, you're, you're so soon giving heed to a different set of ideals and it worried him how many preachers and elders and parents and children have had that same fear about those that they've had a hand in converting they've watched as an individual is baptized into christ and 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 is on fire for the lord and has zeal for things that are good and really schedules their time and their day and their week around the things that are godly and fits everything else in where need be. And then steps away from it and says, that's not who you are anymore. You've allowed some other system and some other way of thinking and some other priority 
platform to, to take away your heart. Now you're, you're giving heed to something other than what was delivered to you. We've seen your commitment to Christ be replaced with a commitment to the world and its activities. You see, the choices of our time, that is, the time that we spend on things, matter. I was reading this week uh, this challenge. Suppose someone were to follow you everywhere that you went, every day for a week, and were to record your, your interest and your, your habits and the time that you invested in certain things and the money that you invested in certain things. What would they come away thinking was your greatest priority? was your highest aim. And as preachers of the gospel, as, as those who, who, who have been entrusted in, in our elders in, in leading the flock, and, and parents who are rearing children, and Bible class teachers who are instructing the next generation of Christians, we look at these things and we, we worry about these things because as a whole, as a congregation, we've committed to a certain way of life, haven't we? We've dedicated ourselves to a particular calendar, to a particular schedule, to, to an agenda. And then to watch as people within the congregation, within the sound of the voice of the preacher, under the the authority of the elders, although having been instructed by their Bible class teachers that are choosing something totally different. And so we address things like we're addressing this month because we, like Paul, worry that people would be so soon taken by another system and another way and another set of priorities to do something totally unrelated to or in contrast to the choice and the commitment they made. Why is it that we're worried about that? I would think that on some level, and this is just me in my opinion, that sometimes preachers preach those things and elders emphasize those things because they see the actions and attitudes and agendas of those who've learned from them and who are led by them as a reflection of their own leadership and their own preaching. And so we, we judge our accomplishment by how faithful those we preach Two are. And I'm just here to tell you this morning, that's a a, a very bad way to look at it as a preacher. Sometimes preachers get their satisfaction and their accomplishment on the faithfulness of those that listen to them. And that's why preachers take it so personally at times when they preach something and changes aren't made and attitudes aren't corrected and and repentance isn't isn't sought. Because I, I preached it and they've committed to something and it's almost a personal assault that we feel and so we take that personal and we so we then preach it again so if you'll change this time then I'll feel better about it maybe I didn't say something like I should have and and whether you've ever wanted to be in the mind of a preacher you are at least for a brief moment this morning that's how it circles around in our heads but is there something more to why we emphasize these things is there something more to why Paul wrote what he wrote in second Corinthians chapter 11 more than personal vindication and validation that we've done a good job, that, that we can say we're a part of a, a faithful church, that, that we're a part of an active church where we have more than 20% of the people who do 80% of the work. Is that our aim or is there something deeper, something better, something more fulfilling? I, I believe that there is. Why would then would we preach an entire month on busyness? If it's not to clear our calendars and make us do more spiritual things than secular things, if it's not to shame us for for how busy we are in secular matters as opposed to matters of the church and social matters as as, as opposed to to matters of the youth group, then then what's the purpose? 
maybe this, this lesson today, and, and Brennan will be preaching next week, and so it'll be my last opportunity in this month to address this overall theme for February. It's this, it's growth takes time. And if we busy ourselves to the point where we have no time to dedicate to growth, we're going to suffer as individuals. We're going to suffer as a congregation. We're going to suffer as a community and as a nation. Now, what we do because we're too busy to grow, and that really, if you want another title for the lesson this morning, that could be it, too busy to grow. If we become too busy to grow, we get caught in one of two areas. The first one I'll just mention because it's not the point, and the second one will be the heart of what we're going to talk about today. When we get too busy to grow, we get caught up in living in the if only or soon mindset. You know, if if only I had a little more time, I would be stronger. If only I had a little more time, I would be more committed. Or when my children get through doing this, and when I get through this phase of life, soon I'll be more committed. Because we understand the, the, the two main facts here. We're busy people and we have to grow, Right? We have schedules that are full, and yet we're required to mature in Christ. And we know that takes time, time that we've admitted that we don't have. And so we get caught up living in this world of, well, if only if, or soon enough I'll be able to do that. Or, or we just simply make our spiritual life part of the fray. And so we multiply our activities. If I can just do one more night in a week for the Lord. One more hour dedicated. If I can get to one more congregational activity, if I can make one more service, I'll free one more hour, one more afternoon, one more evening, one more week, and then I can give that and that will substitute for an overall attitude of commitment and faithfulness and, and priorities. And, we're, and we fool ourselves into believing if we can just get that one hour and give it to Him and we've made a sacrifice of our regular schedule for God, then we feel vindicated and validated that we're right. Friends, growth isn't necessarily about activity. It's not activity that leads to growth sometimes, but it's not activity that measures growth sometimes. I'm going to say sometimes because there could be other lessons that went a different route that might emphasize that. For the purpose of our thoughts today, we, we just want to, be, be up front that, that production and manufacturing does not mean necessarily growth. I can produce more time. I can produce more activity. I can be at more things. But my heart and my mind and my energy and my money still somewhere else. I've just managed to sacrifice some time on the clock. It's a day out of the week, but my heart is still far removed. You see, there's a difference between mimicking what I'm supposed to be and becoming what I'm supposed to be. A difference between process and product, or maybe this would be the best way of saying it, a difference between guilt and growth. I think sometimes the sermons, getting back to all that we said, sometimes the sermons that demand faithfulness produce guilt in the ones that are listening, and so they do more because they feel guilty for not. And growth never really takes place. Because all they're doing is is checking one more thing off the list, adding one more thing on the agenda to say, I've done it, 
so that I don't feel as guilty as I did the week before, and that I'm still where I was at spiritually. There, there's, no, there, there's manufacturing activity and, and producing energy, but, but there's no real genuine growth that takes place. We talked this morning in, in the auditorium class for a few minutes about the Sabbath of the Old Testament and the worship of the New Testament and the difference between the two, and obviously there is. But God did embed in that Old Testament law an opportunity for reflection, didn't he? And, and both were necessary. You see, any time that, that God asks us to take something out of our agenda, it's so that we can replace it with something else. He's never encouraged laziness or slothfulness or, or a lack of education, understanding. Just remove worldly wisdom and insert heavenly wisdom, right? Remove man-made activity and opportunity and input divine activity and opportunity. And so in the Old Testament, when, when they would fast, for example, they would remove the food from their, their, their daily routine so that they could spend more time in devotion and prayer. I would dare say the Sabbath worked kind of the same way. Six days you'll work, on the seventh day you won't. Why? Because it's holy unto the Lord and you'll dedicate it to Him. What did they spend sat- that, that those Saturdays doing? I don't know, we might get this idea that they lived in luxury and they slept all day and someone waited on them hand and foot. By the way, that person would be violating the Sabbath, right? It wasn't just a glorified nap time. But if they, if they took away the, the energy and activity toward the routine and mundane and weekly things, it was so they could devote it to something else. And God expects that of us as well. Not just to, to live above the fray so that we're not caught up in worldly stuff but to live above the fray so that we'll have opportunity and time to slow down and meditate. And that's really what I want to talk to us about this morning. I wanted to be practical in this last lesson together. Rather than just, again, in in generality speaking about how that we're too busy and we shouldn't be, but what am I going to do when I empty that? And I think sometimes, again, the idea is, Stop doing all this stuff in the world and start doing all this stuff in the church. And so the fray just becomes spiritual fray rather than secular fray. Sometimes we just need to stop. Sometimes we just need to quit. Sometimes we don't need to be so busy. We don't need to have something on the agenda. We don't need to have somewhere to go. We don't need to have to have something to watch or something to do or something to accomplish. And let our minds rest fully and solely in who God is and what he's done. Jesus makes the statement in Luke chapter 9 and verse 44. He says, let these words sink down into your ears. We don't speak in those terms today, but we might would say it this way. Let that simmer for a minute. Give that some thought. Take time to... to, to, let it stew. I don't know what, what slang you would use and what colloquial term you would attach to it, but the idea would be that, that you would allow something to take root in you. I do know this. I do know that, that how much time we spend with the Word of God matters. Remember in, in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13, the, the first fell on the wayside soil, that, that which had been hard packed down and, and trodden over. What happened to the seed there? According to the explanation in, chapter, in verse 19... The devil, that is the bird, came along, the ravens came along and and took it away. Why? Because there wasn't enough time spent with it. it. It wasn't there long enough. It was there and it was gone. Ever feel that way? I do. When someone says to me on Tuesday, what'd you preach Sunday? 
and I have to go back and look up my notes or pull out a bulletin. You know why? Because there's a lot of time that's passed between Sunday and Tuesday. So if I can't remember the name of the sermon on Tuesday, why would I expect you to remember the name of it? But the idea is this. We, we are so busy. This is the sermon. Tonight will be the sermon. Tomorrow we'll have something else. Tuesday we'll have something else. And we don't spend time meditating, letting the message of the Word of God sink down into our hearts and change us and shape us and mold us. Why? The number one reason, the absolute number one reason is we're just too busy. Something else takes its place, takes priority, and then we follow after it. Now, we don't really talk a lot about meditation today. It may be partly because it's used, the word is used more times in the Old Testament than the New Testament, and we know there's a difference between the two covenants. And we're going to look at some passages in a moment, or just highlight some passages that illustrate to us that, that meditation was expected of spiritual people. But I think sometimes we also stay away from the idea of meditation because it has connections to sort of Eastern mystic type religions. A lot of meditation that's talked about in our world as a whole is emptying the mind and not thinking about anything. thought about starting by this way this morning, just asking you not to think of something. Just empty your mind. Uh, to me, that seems like it, something that's, that's unattainable. And so in a, in a mystic sense, when you say, listen, you've got to reach this place in your meditation that you have nothing on your mind, well, we're probably never going to get there. And so we, we attach it to this, this inconceivable, unspiritual concept. So we stay away from it. Or we've attached it in more modern times, this idea of meditation. A lot of people will say, well, you need to meditate and think and let things simmer so you can find yourself, so you can discover yourself. Friends, who you are will not be revealed to you necessarily by what's inside of you because you didn't create yourself. Who you are will be revealed to you by what's in the Word of God. Now, if you meditate on that, then you may come to some understanding of who you are and why you were created and what you're here for. But, but just thinking and contemplating and sitting and, and, and turning off distractions is not going to some, bring some sudden revelation that you are special or important or, or divine. In, in, your, in your creation as, as being part of, uh, of the nature of God. That will only come through study and understanding of the Word. And so here's what we simply mean by that. Meditation is nothing more than thinking deeply and continually about the Word of God and then making application in my life. The word means, literally means, to ponder or to focus one's thoughts. Therefore, something has to be there to ponder. Something has to be in me to, to focus on. The word is used literally throughout the, the Old Testament and then it's used at least in representation in the New Testament. Over 60 times the word meditate or meditation is used in our English Bibles. In the Old Testament it means to remember, rehearse, listen and reflect. In the New Testament it means to, to consider carefully, to attend to or to care for. It denotes a, 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 a serious and somber thought that eventually will result in an action or an inward change. We read earlier, Dylan read to us the fifth verse of Psalm 145, on your glorious splendor and your majesty I will meditate. I will rehearse and remember. 
I will let it sink down into my ears. You'll find similar wording in Psalm 19, 14, in Psalm 77, 6, Psalm 119, 97, and 99, Psalm 143, 5. Look at the New Testament. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verses 15 and 16. He says, be diligent, some versions. Take pains, some versions, with these things. New American Standard says, be absorbed in them. I love that phrase. Be absorbed in them, that your progress will be evident to all. Pay close attention to yourself and to the teachings. Take heed to yourself and to the teachings. Let let the thoughts of Scripture sink down into your heart. He's talking to a preacher, a young preacher. He says, take pains, agonize, struggle with, meditate on these things. Why? Because when you do this, you will save yourself and those that hear you. There's an importance to that. How do I then take pains? I think that the practical aspect of this and, and, and two final questions this morning, very, very quickly. Number one, why would I meditate? What, what's the purpose? What does it do? What will it provide for me? And then, very quickly, we'll look at the how, uh, at least some suggestions on how we can do that. Number one, I meditate because, as we mentioned earlier, it takes more than in the initial contact with the Word of God to change us. Think about how many people have sat in these pews and heard the gospel preached who are still in the world and uncommitted to Christ. Think about those who sat in these pews and listened for years on end only to walk away from the Lord. It takes more than a surface connection to, a a general introduction to the gospel of Jesus and, and and its power to change our hearts and minds. And so I would meditate because I can't get all the benefits of Scripture from just surface contact. Number two, because the Word of God is rich and deep. Even if I were to attend every Bible class that was offered by the local church and hear every sermon that was preached in a given year, I would walk away knowing maybe the bare minimum that I should know in a year's time about the Word of God. It takes more than that. It is unsearchable. Its depths are sometimes staggering and terrifying. But I should meditate because the Word of God is deep and rich. I should meditate because hiding it in my heart, Psalm 119.11, will keep me from sinning. Consider the temptations of Jesus recorded in Matthew 4. You remember, don't you, how he answered each of those? It is written. You, you may not remember the actual verse. You may not remember the actual principle, but you remember this. As the devil tempted him, he said, it is written, it is written, it is written. I wonder as a child, as he learned those scriptures if he thought one day he would stand face to face with the devil and have to quote that passage as an answer to his temptation. There, there might have been a time as he learned that, and maybe we do as we learn passages, think, when will I ever have to warn myself against tempting God? I'd never tempt God. And then you're put in a situation where that's exactly what the temptation calls for you to do. But unless that saying has sunk down into your heart and into your ears, you don't have an answer for that. You may have an immediate reaction. It may be a trained conscience, but it's not a biblical answer. Why? Because they haven't meditated on those things. 
And number four, I should meditate because eventually the Word of God will provide strength. And I say eventually because sometimes it has to tear down before it builds up. Sometimes when I meditate on the Word of God, if I don't find myself meditating on God and His nature and His purpose and His plan, and I try to do that, I'm probably going to be broken down before I'm built up. I'm probably going to be ashamed at all the things that I've missed and all the time that I haven't spent with Him and and, and the lack of concern I've given toward understanding and, and appreciating His Word. But when I get past that, it will help me. It will build me up, Acts 20 and verse 32. It will strengthen me because that's its design. That's its purpose. But I think the the greatest question from a practical standpoint would be how? Am I just supposed to turn off the TV and shut the door and sit in a chair? By the way, that's a good start. It's a really good start. By the way, let me just say this. You and I meditate on the things that are important to us every day without calling it meditation. We might call it daydreaming or getting distracted, but what it really means is something that's more important in our thought process takes over where we're at. Don't don't show your hands on this. But have you ever been having a conversation? Maybe with your husband or wife, maybe. And the conversation continues and something enters your mind that at that moment feels more important and more pressing. And all of a sudden... She's three or four lines more into the conversation and you're way over here. And she can tell that. Can't she? Sure. Why'd you do that? Because you didn't care anything about her? No, because that thought that came to mind took precedent for a moment. Maybe we call it daydreaming about tomorrow or the next day or the the trip that's upcoming or the, the plans that we have with friends or, or what was going on at work or, or what exciting opportunity. Or maybe it's, it's when we're at work on Friday or, or, or even Saturday and we're thinking about worship on Sunday. The things that take precedent in our daydreaming and our mind wandering are those things that really what we're spending time is we're, we're meditating on them and, and to the chagrin of everyone around us, we're shutting everything else out. I would suggest that's all the Bible means when it says to meditate on the Word of God. It's to be able to shut everything out. I don't have to be in an empty room with the television off. It'll probably help. But I don't have to be there. Let it preoccupy my thoughts and my agenda. Here are some suggestions. Number one, take a proverb or a song, psalm and write it. And maybe write it over and over. And commit it to memory. Take a notepad with you throughout the day or your notes on your phone and, and as you're, you're driving, and turn off the radio and, and get off the phone. That Both of those things might help us anyway. And just meditate and let that saying sink down into our hearts. And then when you get where you're going, take out that notepad, take out those notes on your phone and write down what you remember. The lesson that you learned, the Something that you want to share with your family because you've spent time meditating on that. Consider a biblical account. Consider the scene. Maybe hear the waves or, 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 or see the reactions on people's faces. Imagine being a part of them. Think about where David was as Nathan told him the story of the man with the one lamb and the rich man who had a number of them. David was so angry, he didn't know who the man was, but that man deserved to die because David found himself in the middle of the story. Put yourself there. 
reflect on that. Perhaps as we observe the Lord's Supper, you've done that with the cross before and wondered what it would be like. Imagine, imagine how rich our lives would be if we spent part of every day at the foot of the cross and meditated on what we heard and what we saw, what we remembered. Study the creation. Watch the birds or the sunrise or the sunset. The deer in the backyard. You know what the psalmist said in Psalm 8 and verse 3, When I consider your heavens and the work of your fingers, the sun, the moon, the moon and the stars which you have ordained, what is man that you're mindful of him? He was meditating on creation. I know we've all stood in an area unfamiliar to us in our country, whether at the rim of the Grand Canyon or the top of a mountain peak, and we've said things like this, how amazing is our God? You, know, you don't have to go to the top of a mountain or the edge of the Grand Canyon to know that, do you? Sun rises every day because he's great. Meditate where you are on the beauty of the creation that's around you. And allow that to strengthen your relationship with God. Think about heaven. Meditate on hell. On promises that God has made. On mistakes of your past. On the goals that you have for your future. On what you want your children to be. On what you want the church to look like. And how we can get there. And then when you've meditated on that and it strengthened you, share that with us. I believe that Paul said it best when he told the Colossians in Colossians 3 and verse 2 to set your mind on things above. Think above the fray. I mean, I can get out of it. Still got to go to work tomorrow. Still have that, that work meeting at 2 o'clock and that, that dinner engagement at 7 and, 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 and a ball game on Tuesday night. And I still got all those things, but you know what? My mind can be engaged in those things while all the while meditating on the things that are more important, that are spiritual, and that are more demanding in reality of my time. You see, living above the fray may not at all change our weekly calendar. But setting our minds above the fray may mean all the difference in the world. This morning, as we offer the Lord's invitation, there are a number of thoughts that come to mind, aren't there? We're going to sing a song for your encouragement. If you've never obeyed the gospel, we want you to, to, to ask more about that process, what it means to repent of your sins, what it means to confess the name of Jesus, what, it, what the purpose of, his, of baptism is so you can get into Christ. We'd love to discuss that with you. Maybe you're here and you're a Christian. You've done those things. You haven't lived life above the fray. You know you need to. Now, as we offer the invitation, there are a lot of thoughts that come to mind. A lot of ideas that, 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 that sort of swell over us. It may be how so-and-so has received this lesson. The fact that they need to live above the fray and think above the fray and they're not. And I sure hope they were listening. And if they need to, I sure hope they walk the aisle. I suppose there are great thoughts in that. It may be that we're thinking, I'm glad we're through with this and we can get on to something else because I'm tired of being told I'm too busy. I don't know what your thought would be. It may be nothing at all that's anything related to spirituality. But understand the reason that we put this into our service is to give every one of us an opportunity to think above and beyond right here and right now. When we come to the invitation of Jesus Christ, we're thinking about eternity. 
We're thinking about the cross and judgment. We're thinking about the second coming of Christ and where we'll spend the rest of our existence beyond this world. Could I encourage you, if no other time in this hour, that you would set your minds on things above, that it be for the next three or four minutes and respond to the Lord if you have need while we stand and sing.